welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we take on the woke left by discussing why American values are unified for all Americans, regardless of background, gender, or race. We'll get into the principles of a free society and why efforts to downplay America's greatness is harmful to the commendable goal of equality and opportunity for all Americans. And we have a wonderful guest today to talk about just this. Angela Saylor joins us. She serves as vice president of the Fulner Institute at the Heritage Foundation. She is an executive with 20 plus years of experience, delivering measurable achievements in both in-house and advisory roles working with the government. This includes the White House, Congress, U.S. Department of State, and the U.S. Department of Education. She's also served in corporate America as well as NGOs and nonprofit organizations. She serves as a public member on the Senior Foreign Service Select Board for the United States Department of State and also adjunct professor for Georgetown University's Continuing School of Education. Angela, a pleasure to have you on She Thinks today. Oh, Beverly, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And there is so much to delve into when it comes to the American dream, when it comes to the American founding, and where we are today as far as how especially young people view that and whether or not minority communities think that the American dream is for them. I saw in a recent article on the Daily Signal that you wrote, you said that American values really are unifying, that no matter who we are, we can all appeal to the principle of equality under the law when somebody violates our civil rights. So why are you a huge proponent of American values and why do you think that those values still relate to everyone? Oh my goodness. You know, when we, when we get up each day and we look around the world um, and we're able to look at this unique place called America with the freedoms and the liberties we have here, um, I, I just am so energized in the work that we do. Uh, a lot of young people that we come across are um, looking at the international stage and, and, and at life here domestically now. And it's really interesting uh, to get in conversations with them over, um, you know, this kind of the cancel culture, the social justice culture um, that, that we have in play. But once you really start to delve into conversations with them and really begin to talk about America the beautiful and what that means for their dream, right, and living out their dream in America, the tone and tenor of that conversation changes drastically. Uh, and, and we're even seeing with um, different studies um, that, are, that are being done with like Echelon Insights and Pew, uh, where they've really talk to Gen Zs and millennials about the American dream. And as they talk about the American dream, the word opportunity just really continues to rise to the top, that, that in America they get to explore um, opportunities that they're looking at, which really takes you back to the Declaration of Independence. It, it takes you back to um, the Constitution in terms of why that's even possible. Um, and so, as I said, I get so fueled um, at trying to get on the other side of the portrayals that we see through the, me- through the eyes of the media um, and, and kind of more limiting viewpoints about what p- young people are thinking and saying and doing 
versus actually getting to talk to them about it. We have an incredible program at the Heritage Foundation, which we call our First Principle Series. And um, under the, the Fulner Institute, which I run, uh, we have our Center for American Studies, and Joe Lacante, Dr. Joe Lacante, is our director and deals with and engages with young people all day long over why, over the development of Western civilization and what makes America so special. And one of the things that I think has been paramount as we've seen the news coverage and the posture of higher education and even K-12 education is this attempt to define everybody by their mistakes in the past. So we've seen statues being torn down. We've seen schools being renamed. When you educate, especially young people or talk to young people about the mistakes and the sins of our past, how do you think we should view those individuals who, for example, were slave owners? Um, How should we view that in today's society when some are saying, how can we lift anybody up who did own slaves? Uh, you know, that that conversation is so important, Beverly. Um, so let's just for a moment talk about the narrative that comes out of the New York Times 1619 project, which really tries to drive um, uh, a, a, a very negative narrative uh, about what the future holds based on what happened in the past. And when we're talking to um, young people, African-Americans, Hispanics, just across the board about that, one of the words that always comes up is forgiveness. Um, and, you know, when, when we're looking at and examining a person's life juxtaposed to their contribution, we really can't look across history and find like the perfect human being, right? <laughs> we're not right, we're not right. perfect. <laughs> no. But we are blessed um and you know depending on how you look at blessings and and where they come from. But we get to be tools and resources towards sowing good into society even though we make mistakes even though at times our viewpoint about life and the world and our role in it will evolve, it doesn't take away from those good things that we're able to do along the journey of life. And so when we're talking to young people about that and we begin to drill in, what we hear a lot from them is this. They get frustrated when, um, especially and especially uh, black youth, They get frustrated when they feel like the narrative won't acknowledge the human frailty and flaw there and that someone's trying to push a narrative that people were perfect. And when we're able to kind of separate that over, yeah, nobody's perfect, but at the same time, you can't take away the good thing that they did that has continued to sow over and over and over value and fruit into our society. That's where we begin to really resonate in, in the acceptance of and the celebration and the excitement. And so we find that it's really important to separate that conversation as hard as it can be at times that that young person doesn't come to the conclusion that now I just cancel you (laughs) and I cancel everything that you've ever done 
um, because there's something there that I don't like, when they begin to also reflect on themselves and contributions that they hope to make and that they have made uh, in reflection on mistakes that they make along the way. And we've seen how society has tried to right the wrong. We see that something that is pretty prominent among some liberal circles right now, something known as critical race theory. And that seems to be one of the ways that groups of people want to make up for the mistakes that people have made in the past. Uh, White privilege has been a phrase that's been used quite often. When you do talk to minority youth, does a critical race theory perspective or having that theory in schools, do they view that as a way to educate people and lead to a better society for them um, to eliminate racism that may exist and does exist within individuals? Or is the forgiveness route really the best route for people who have been victims of racism and oppression? You know, there, Beverly, I think we have to be careful not to paint with a really broad brush. Um, And I think when we, you know, in Washington, where we get into these conversations that become A or B uh, versus kind of what's that third option component of the discussion. And I think that the majority of people are in that kind of third option area. Um, We've done a series of um, webinars on critical race theory and and have published um, and and really tried to do a deep dive on educating people about this. And, you know, you, you have some constituencies that are just like outraged, right? Like, absolutely. I, this is, this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then you've got some folks who are hearing um, rhetoric and vocabulary, and they're not really sure what some of the terms mean. Um, and they're, they're, they're trying to understand and kind of wade through the water or the weeds on that to, to, to get a better sense of it. And so we have found um, in our efforts to try to really educate people about this is to kind of walk them back on the history of like, what is critical race theory, right? Um, and we, we, we slow down and, and do the conversation of helping people to understand that this, this theory is, is, is trying to shape American culture from individuals to institutions, um, and that it seeks to solve concerns about racial inequality, but in fact actually creates new ones, right? And through its lens, institutions like law and education and business are the main source of racial problems in terms of what this theory is, is, is purporting. And, um, you know, it, it, it's driving uh, an overthrow, if you will, as the only solution. And so you, you, you're in a conversation that's so narrow um, and, and through such a narrow lens and then at the same time, when you look at the impact of what this theory, which, which many uh, experts have just said is nonsense, and it has, the, it has the nerve to use the word critical with it, right? And oftentimes we think of critical thinking. Right. Um, we, we think of critical thinking and that kind of thing. But critical race theory is just basically asking people to kind of be mindless um, about about the approach. 
And so when we look at like, well, what does this mean? What does this mean for our speech, right? So critical race theory is like, well, there can be no free speech. Any word or expression can be viewed as an exertion of power. Um, and that just kind of drives to today's cancel culture of, of those who want to control speech and shape society and dictate how we relate to one another. So you, you brought up higher ed. I mean, we're seeing that all across the country um, in terms of those limitations and even the limitations on academic freedom. Uh, when we look at K through 12 and, and our schools and our children there, um, you've got the activism is, is, is like trying to replace academics and educators are becoming agents for social change through curriculum and school discipline and testing and, and what we often call now as civics action, right? And then we go, okay, but it's also at the workplace. Um, and, and so, and in politics. And so it's like this thing that calls itself critical race theory is running through and starting to become more rampant through the, the bloodstream of our society. And we frankly think that it's really important to respond to this uh, in a very assertive way that America doesn't need this. This is not the solution um, to bringing people together and trying to live in a harmonious situation or environment, if you will. That, you know, America is the land of the free with unlimited opportunity, and our founding ideas and institutions reflect the inherent equal rights of every individual uh, to do good for themselves, their families, and their communities, and, and the society as a whole. And a term that you mentioned, which we've heard so much in the past year, is that term cancel culture. And I've wondered, as you speak so often to young people, have we seen maybe the pendulum swinging in the other direction? Meaning, when we see that people are judged for the worst tweet that they ever wrote years ago, or that photo that they posted when they're young, do you find that young people, since they often do have a track record of information on social media, I'm, I'm personally very thankful I did not grow up with social media. I would hate to see some <laughs> of the things I thought and said then come back to haunt me now. I'm a very different person. Do you find that young people may find themselves realizing of all the stuff I've put online, I would never want that to cause me to be canceled. Do you think the pendulum at, is at all swinging in the other direction? You know, I, I mean, we've got, we're seeing some data and research there too, where, um, I mean, people on the left and the right think that the cancel culture pieces has gone too far. Um, I can, let me share a personal experience with it. I have a son who attends a boarding school and he's, he's actually the president of the student body. And so COVID, I think, created another dynamic um, as, you know, kids were at home and, and not interfacing with one another. And what we saw in our own personal experience was the more that the kids could be hidden through the devices and not having to engage with each other face-to-face, -face, um, their courage or their, their tenacity towards so-called canceling you was at a greater heightened, heightened place. Um, but like in an in, in instance of my son, once they were all back together on campus, 
the, and, and having to look at each other and look in their eyes and deal with each other as humans and versus through a device, um, those, those masking devices being, you know, taken out of the way and out of the equation allowed them to deal with each other in a more humane way. Um, and so I, I, as, as I look at this and as I'm talking to young folks across the country and, and in the work that we do, um, those devices and the um, social media, um, the, the social media vehicles, I think, help to escalate those things to another level um, that kids really just don't have the courage to do if it's face to face. And, you know, and so it, it, it really is getting back to driving relationships. And I think when people have contact with each other, the, the genuineness of those relationships and our humanity are better able to connect as they should. Um, but when we've got the devices as a way to kind of block our humanity um, and we're kind of alone in a, in a space and you're getting uh, a certain kind of feedback, uh, you lose your perspective. Um, and so I, I, I think, um, you know, and, and, and the other thing we, we see with kids is things are like kind of very trendy with them, right? Right. <laughs> and they get, they get tired of things very quickly, tired of being mad at somebody or, or putting somebody in a box because now it's kind of time to move on to something else that might be more advantageous for the, the, the bigger and greater good of that community. Yeah. And before we continue the conversation, I did want to take a moment to highlight IWF's Champion Women Profile Series, which focuses on women across the country and world that are accomplishing amazing things. The media too often ignores their stories, but we don't. We celebrate them and bring their stories directly to you. Our current profile is Representative Yvette Harrell from New Mexico's 2nd Congressional District. To check out her story, do go to IWF.org to see why she's this week's champion woman. And Angela, to continue the conversation, a word that you used earlier is the word unify. And that leads me directly to the new administration, the Joe Biden administration. One of the first things that he did, he did it on January 20th, his first day as president, was to eliminate the 1776 commission. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what the commission's goal was and why you think this is not the direction that the Biden administration should have taken us and, and what you see is the uphill battle in this area of race and America's founding with this administration? Sure. Um, yeah, so the, the, the cancellation of the 1776 commission, uh, I think, took us all by a, a, by a surprise in terms of, woof, wow. Um, that, that, that was one of those places where I think people were pretty hopeful that um, as a nation we'd be able to kind of pull our strength in a place of, of being neutral right, and, and, and not letting that become political, if you will. That commission um, was designed to be able to take a hard look at, um, you know, curricula that, that's across the country and to be able to make some recommendations into uh, how important it is and um, looking at opportunities to bring people together to talk about 
you know, how to bolster the American story um, and doing it rooted in the founding documents, right? So um, the 1619 Project was really at the top of so many people's minds um, where you've got, you know, kind of the collision of, of journalism. They were calling it at one point and then they, New York Times called it more of a promotional marketing piece. And in the very beginning, they were saying it was historically rooted. Um, and and we, we saw them backing off on that. Um, we've, we, we, we did our own research and surveys toward that end. And the good news is as we surveyed parents and teachers, um, overwhelmingly, we saw people responding that, yes, the, the founding of the nation is 1776, and the Declaration of Independence is a good document that, that, need, that, that we need to celebrate and lean on for, for strength. Um, I think the danger comes in when, when you start politicizing um, the basic um, truths of, of, of where we all know there's like no black and white about those things. Um, and as, as you, know, you were asking about, you know, kind of what does this mean from, for, from a race standpoint? Um, the story of black America um, and, and what I mean by black America, the, the story of blacks in this country uh, is critically important to the narrative of America. And I mean, we can look across the spectrum at the Bill of Rights Institute and the Ashbrook Center and others, Bill McClay, uh, his book, Land of Hope, where people are really, scholars are really trying to um, take uh, a closer look at how to weave the story together. And um, you've got Bob Woodson with the 1776 Commission doing the same thing. And so I think that, you know, when, when things get politicized, there's, there, there becomes this whole tension of someone has to lose and someone has to win uh, versus how do we all come out on the other side of this stronger and better for it. One of the things that we've been doing at the Heritage Foundation is um, leading a restoring civics working group. And as we look at the work that the 1776 Commission has started, um, and we think it's very important that that report gets in the hands of as many people as possible, and we're working towards efforts to help make that happen. Uh, on the day it was canceled, it came down off of the website, and you had organizations like ours that were posting it as well so that it could continue to be a document that people could access. Uh, but one of the things we're doing at Heritage and our work in, in the civic space is we are launching um, a, a wonderful effort to make sure that we are engaging parents um, in this process. You've got lots of organizations that have done an incredible job with educating teachers and um, trying to make sure that they've got a better understanding of, of why the founding documents and how to use the founding documents in, in a really good way and looking at alternatives to curricula. 
But one of the things that we're joining forces with different organizations across the country is, uh, again, as I said, on trying to make sure that parents are getting trained on how to cultivate uh, stronger relationships with teachers in the classroom, especially around the issues of civics and history, uh, giving them training on how to kind of look at the materials to know and understand like some of the buzzwords that walk us down, you know, some of these dead end streets. But one of the things that we think is critically important here is not to foster or encourage a combative relationship between the parent and the teacher, but rather a healthy relationship that becomes a partnership where the families are having more involvement. Um, And why do we think all that's important at the end of the day? Well, we don't want parents to, you know, try to voice their concerns and then now their child is, you know, going to be disadvantaged in the classroom because the teacher was mad <laughs> at, the, right. at, at the, you know, at the, at the, at the, at this relationship that's coming. But also because, you know, we firmly believe that policies across the, across the country need to promote transparency, just period. And we, we've seen with COVID parents really saying, yes. We need more transparency. Oh, my goodness, I didn't know. I can see the computer now. I see things that are happening. But, again, we think the healthy approach to this is one that cultivates stronger relationships between the families and the teachers towards getting it right and that locally those decisions have to be made about what getting it right means. Um, But what we know it's not is a combative relationship that creates an even broader divide that just has people looking for a winner and a loser. Well, we so appreciate your work in this area. I know it's a very tough area to wade into these days, and there are a lot of attacks against anyone who does want to lift up the founding of this country and talk about the American dream. So we appreciate the work you're doing. Before I let you go, can you let people know where they can find some of this curricula that you have mentioned? Is this on the Heritage website, or or where can they go for more information on this? Sure. We have uh, what we call a curriculum resource site. So you can go to heritage.org backslash curriculum resources. Um, and that will give you um, so much information, information on school choice, charter schools, transparency. Uh, and it will also lead you to uh, discussions that we've had on critical race theory and, and papers that we've written there. And, we also, it will also lead you to information about the 1619 Project uh, and an analysis of that curriculum um, from a political standpoint with their political essays as well as the essays on capitalism. Uh, so it's all at heritage.org. And Beverly, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to have such a wonderful conversation with you today. Angela Saylor with the Heritage Foundation, we thank you for joining us. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. 
And last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. Also, we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.